0: Hello and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. In 30 years, it's estimated that 70% of the world's population will live in cities. Today I'm talking with Adriana Young, who's the head of city relations at STAY. They help cities make sense of the millions of data points being produced every day. So I'm here with Adriana Young from STAY. Uh, Adriana, tell me a little bit about what STAY is.
1: Sure. So STAY is a tool. It's a platform that cities can use to manage their real-time data. So essentially, it helps cities kind of wrangle, ingest, and then publish all the data that is available now, which wasn't available even five or ten years ago.
0: Okay. And what's your role within STAY?
1: So I am the head of city relations, which means that I talk to cities. <laughs> I talk to cities and I help align our product with the actual day-to-day needs and problems that are arising for cities. And then I help tell stories about the ways that we've worked with cities um, in ways that can help inspire other cities and other vendors too. So the great thing about the city space, it's very... Um, It's very holistic and pluralistic. Um, So even though you're working with one city and one department, um, the kind of learnings and experience that you have that you're able to generate are things that are applicable to lots of different places and professions, really.
0: Cool. And how did you get started with Stay? Like, What, what was your journey to this point?
1: Um, I had always been interested. I'd actually started working as a community organizer and had started my own school for undocumented immigrant families right when I was actually still in college. And I started realizing that any social issue, any community issue is linked to our actual built environment. Right. So the problem that I was trying to solve is helping people learn English and use language as a tool for empowerment. But a lot of their issues were actually having to do with advocating for their right to the city. So their rights at work, their rights to transport, their rights to recycling, to different services. And then gradually I realized that, wow, I think that I'm really interested at the, in the city scale and, um, really tackling Our social issues from the lens of design and planning. So I studied urban design at the London School of Economics. Um, and then I realized that I didn't, I didn't want to work in planning, because I actually I hate rules, <laughs> I hate rules, and I hate formulas, and I think that our problems are so much more complex and so human centered, and a lot of the solutions that we have are just that they're solutions, so it means they're very focused on something that's formulaic, which you know, technology itself is often uh, pitched as a solution, right? When we talk about different products, it's solutions. And um, I'm not interested in solving the city. I'm interested in in partnering, um, listening and understanding and empowering different actors in the city to have a more effective relationship with each other and with the built environment.
0: So I'm curious how, how we take technology and we take sort of this very audacious goal of helping people and how technology and data feeds into helping to solve for that goal.
1: Sure. So I think that technology actually doesn't solve problems. Technology in itself inherently, it's just a tool, right? But you still need people to use the tool to apply it and to imply their own human intelligence, collaboration, problem solving, right? But using technology um, as a different kind of agent or material, right? that you can bring to intractable problems a lot of the times. So very clearly um, with, with stay, it's just a tool for cities to um, actually make visible and make accessible their data. You know that a lot of city data is not in the hands of cities. It's trapped in vendors, or maybe it's in the city, but it's actually not in a format that people can use and share. Um, and so we're just really just leveling the playing field. It's almost like we're creating this foundation um, for cities to be able to use what is theirs and really to level the playing field with with um, technology vendors that aren't always forthcoming and transparent about the data that they do have that actually belongs to the city. So we're kind of neutralizing and, um, and creating this kind of neutral infrastructure.
0: Well, maybe we take a step back and yeah. we talk about, you know, the types of data that these cities are producing. Sure. Um, And collecting, um, and what is visible and what is not and what they can use and what they cannot.
1: Yeah. Actually, we were just last week in the city of Detroit. So the city of Detroit has an open data portal, right? So they have lots of data sets that they publish and they make available online to the general public. So there's data on 311 calls, 911 and crime, air pollution, bike lanes, building permits buildings that are going to be demolished, et cetera. So all those kinds of data sets, they're all kept in different ways, okay? So the person who's keeping that data set on building permits maybe is not the same person and it's not in the same format as the data on the buildings that are going to be demolished, essentially. So what we do is we make all those data sets be able to talk to each other, like make them uniform and very easily to map and visualize. And the story that I wanted to tell was that um, when we were preparing to go to Detroit as part of this um, conference on public public life and public design, I was just doing some quick research on Detroit data and I came across this data set that was generated by an Uber driver. Okay, So there's this young man named Viranel and he's an Uber driver. He also works at Trader Joe's and he had taken it upon himself to document almost every single public artwork, every mural and now sculpture in the streets of Detroit. And he had actually made a website and that website ha- was like pulling from a spreadsheet. But that spreadsheet and that data set wasn't technically um, city data, right? It was a citizen, an individual citizen who had this passion and interest and went around the city because that was something that was important to him, right? That defined his city was this artwork. And so what we did is that we ingested it and made it interoperable with all the other Detroit open data set. So now you can actually look at a map of Detroit, you can see where murals are, where building permits, where new buildings are coming up, where buildings are slated for demolishment, where people are making complaints about noise, about graffiti, about crime, etc. So that's kind of the the city data story that we're trying to um, always seek and support. So when citizens themselves can collect data and then we can kind of elevate it and integrate it alongside other city data, then um, there's no chance that things can be siloed or specific uh, viewpoints of community groups or individuals can be dismissed as not necessarily evidence-based or legitimate.
0: Right, because it's all the data is there. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about smart cities yeah. and sort of the future of Urban living. A lot of studies about how I think 70% of all uh, people will be living in cities mm-hmm. um, in 20, 30 years, 2050. Yeah, I
1: think it's 2050. Yeah.
0: Um, so, what does it actually mean to be a so called smart city?
1: Yeah, it's funny because sometimes we have calls with cities and they ask us that. They'll ask us that very question. So, if we get stay, will this make us smart? Uh, and the answer is no. Definitely not. Um, you can't buy a product and it'll, you know, change, add intelligence into your automatically into the way that you operate and run your city. Um, I think the smart city movement has not been really a movement. It's been a lot about – it's about products, right? So essentially the promise of the smart city is that there's going to be no errors. There's going to be ultimate efficiency, um, algorithms – will decide how to distribute resources and adopt the city plan. It'll be a city optimized for efficiency. But the question is, is that a city you want to live in? <gasps> Do people wake up every morning and think, "I can't I can't wait to make my day more efficient and my whole future is going to be planned around efficiency." There's a lot of other complexity and richness to city life and what draws, you know, 70% of our planet To be in an urban environment is not always about efficiency. And it's definitely not about, um, kind of handing over decision making to algorithms, right? Um, I think the main reason why people move to cities is for personal agency, right? It's about opportunity, connection, diversity, exposure. And those are the things that we're trying to, um, champion and make sure that we empower in our, in our platform.
0: Okay. So when we talk about efficiency, though, I, I think that there are huge advantages to that. I mean, when you think about trains running on time, for example, sure. which has been a big problem in New York, um, and, you know, keeping infrastructure up to date and those types of things. Is that something that STAY helps to solve for or at least provides information around?
1: Efficiency is just one part of the solution. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, cities want to get ready for the future. They have to get ready for all the people who are coming and the new jobs that haven't been created yet and the new kinds of ways that we're going to be moving around. So, yeah, the first thing that they have to do is they have to take stock of how their current systems are running, how their infrastructure works. What are the improvements they can make? Um, how can they optimize and make more efficient their services? That's just one step. More fundamentally, they have to change their relationship with data. Right? Cities need to be able to make more evidence-based arguments and plans, right? It's not about buying a product or solution. It's changing the way that cities have a relationship with data so that they know they have the right to it, number one, which is a big deal actually that we can't really overlook. You know, cities get, um, roped into contracts with vendors and like, look at what happened with Airbnb and Uber and Lyft. That was, those are businesses that are benefiting and are only able to exist because they're using city infrastructure, right? But why are cities in the position now where they have to be begging for that data and almost to the point where they, that they were going to be buying it back from those services? So the data is theirs. They have to be able to evaluate things neutrally. Um, so it's not just the loudest voice in the room. And they need to have data that is going to, help in over time, right? So that they can make better decisions for um, for the next 30 years, right?
0: Sure. So your customers are the cities themselves. Is that true?
1: Yeah, we work with cities and also uh, real estate developers.
0: And when you talk about working with the cities or trying to convince them to become a customer, like, yeah. what are you selling to them? Like, what's the vision for what they can do with this data?
1: Yeah. So it's... Three things. One is an opportunity to evaluate and iterate. So the way that stay works is that you can ingest any data. You can look at it. You can map it. You could look at it alongside other types of city data and you can see, is this the right data? Is this valuable? So a lot of small to mid-sized cities that we work with, they don't have infinite budgets. So they can't, they can't afford to take the risk on buying a solution that's actually not going to move them forward. So we help cities evaluate Different kinds of products and services. We also do hardware prototyping. So we'll make a small production run of GPS trackers for emergency service vehicles or um, sensors to show when parking spots are, are filled or empty. So cities can start to have a more kind of playful prototyping, iterative approach to these kinds of solutions and not feel like they have to commit to something and get locked down into these, into these contracts. The big thing that we offer to cities is just a place to put all of their data in a way that links it to a real time set to a living file. So instead of having to upload and update your city data, it's connected to a live, you know, could be a Google sheet, for example, but you put the data there and then it's always there. But we work with API feeds, so cities can directly connect with API feeds from their vendors and also publish their own. So in a way, it's almost like giving, empowering them with this new language that they can speak API. They can speak in real-time data. They can ingest it, and then they can curate different sets and make it available to the public, but make it available to developers. So it, it's almost like an entryway into a new, a new way of, of communicating with vendors and citizens.
0: So once once all these data sets are connected yeah. and cities have a better view mm-hmm. into all these things that are happening, what can they do with that yeah. data?
1: Um, they can start, one, sharing, increasing their transparency. So there's a huge um, movement in the past 10 years of open governance and transparency. Governments were in kind of a, a flurry to you know be compliant and meet open data standards. And so they just published, they took their data and they put it on the internet. And then not that much happened because it wasn't in a format that people could use. Developers, mainly, could use and ingest in real time and and build things with. So they can share it in a format that people can use as a raw material. So apps, for example. Developers and apps can ingest the data and use it. So just like um, Google Maps relies on a real-time feed of you know where the trains are, imagine that for every type of city data.
0: Okay. Can you give some examples of how cities are working with app developers or third parties to improve life uh, within yeah. the city?
1: Yeah, great question. So one of the cities that we work with is Jersey City, right across the river, our, our neighbor, and they wanted to go beyond making their data public, right? And so what we did is that we set up a state platform for them, They have about 19 different types of data that they're ingesting. A lot of the data, actually several sets of data, were not available to them previously. They were actually locked in with their vendors. A lot of the times, even when cities have access to the data, maybe one or two people can log in and see it, Mm -hmm. but not everybody who works in the city, right? So the first step for them was just um, ingesting, universalizing, and creating internal access for the data, Jersey City is an extremely diversity, and so they're always interested in ways that they can increase access and equity. And so what we did is that we worked with a couple of different chatbot developers um, to make their data queryable by a chatbot. Um, and so now with Jersey City, you can you can text the city, you can, so you can SMS, you don't have to have a smartphone, or you can use Facebook Messenger um, to ask questions like, where can I find a bike share? When is uh, trash pickup scheduled for my street? Um, That kind of thing. The next step is um, adding different languages to it. So ideally, they would like to have all the languages um, that are spoken in Jersey City, have their data queryable by any language that anyone speaks in Jersey City.
0: Okay. What are the biggest challenges when you go to these cities and you try to talk to them? Um and convince them that they need to be able to wrangle off this data. Where are the biggest challenges to adoption?
1: Yeah, it's our challenge, actually, to find a way in which stay meets one of their urgent needs. So there's so many competing needs in the city, right? So sometimes the mayor will have a really strong agenda. Sometimes there's different departments that will have, you know, more funding or more agency. So it's really our job to do the research and find out what's what's the most pressing issue? So what are the community meetings about? What are the hearings about? What is What are the new kinds of policies that are being drafted? So right now we're focusing a lot on helping cities manage dockless bike and scooter programs. So a lot of cities are piloting programs and they have multiple vendors at the same time. So how can they best evaluate and ensure equitable and safe access to these different types of mobility. How can they actually use it as an opportunity to learn from how people are are getting around? And that's probably going to impact a lot of decision-making around um, street and transport planning.
0: It's my impression that a lot of cities, you know, we hear about budget constraints and budgets being cut, you know, all over the place. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, how do you convince them that they need this thing that's not already in their budget Yeah, when they're probably making cuts somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Sometimes what the, not necessarily the, the argument, but the kind of aha moment for um, city managers or business managers for cities is, wait a minute, let's just invest a little bit more upfront in this tool so that we can make better decisions about what we buy in the future. So um, because stay allows you to evaluate the types of data and do prototyping of, um, different data that different vendors are going to provide, you're less likely to, uh, to regret (laughs) a decision, right? So before you sign, you know, before you sign up for a long-term contract, there's an opportunity to evaluate and not feel so pressured. You know, cities are being very aggressively sold to because it's a very, um, it's a big market, right? And there's a lot of excitement and attention from venture capital now on on the cities and cities as this new frontier to solve. And there's a lot – there's almost like this, a little bit too much aggression and at the same time, like lack of humility, right, um, for the cities. Like cities have been around for a long time and they don't operate at the same speed as venture capital or a startup. They are slower, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think when you have more empathy um, and understanding for how how cities make decisions, how the people working in cities operate, then you can find ways to really naturally align what you're offering and what their day-to-day problems are.
0: Right. Just bouncing off of what you're saying there, there's been a lot of talk in the tech space and the venture capital community about – you know, regulation at the city level, um, asking for forgiveness, not yeah. permission, yeah. that type of thing. Um, do you have a strong feeling on tactics for entering cities as a tech company um, and where it makes sense to go in and partner versus, you know, just trying to gain hold of a user base that's there? Yeah. Um,
1: so we're not big fans of that. <laughs> um, we try we talk to both Actually, when you asked me if we're, we're mostly selling to the cities, we are partnering with other vendors who want to be more responsible. We seek out and, and those vendors seek us out too. Um, so we work with more enlightened <laughs> and um, collaborative tech vendors that want to partner with the city. And the city is not, you know, the city is, is built for adaption and evolution, right? You just have to do a little bit of work on your side to understand their processes and speak their language, right? There has to be some, a little bit more compromise and, and adaption on the tech side to working with cities. And ultimately, I think that that strategy pays off in the long run, right? There's already been companies that, micro mobility companies like the, the scooter and the dockless bikes that have been asked to leave. And how do you recover from that? You know, once you have a bad reputation in a city, it's, it's hard to, it's, you know, it's hard to pivot <laughs> from that.
0: Sure. Yeah. When we talk about smart cities Mm -hmm. um, and innovation happening within cities, who's doing it right? Who's doing really interesting things Hmm. um, from a city perspective?
1: I think that Barcelona is doing some great things. They've, They've been a leader in the smart city space for a while because they're taking a pretty radical approach, which is they're open sourcing everything. So they're not committing to specific vendors or products. All city data is available via, you know, API feed. They've taken a much more community and collaborative approach. So instead of kind of discrete pilot projects or services that they want to improve, they were thinking about it much more globally as, okay, what is the city that we want to live in? It's an open city. It's a transparent city. What does that mean and how does that philosophy translate to how we treat our data and how we engage technologists and designers and artists? So I think that they're probably the most interesting and if you want to say advanced (laughs) cities in the smart city space. I think that there's probably a lot of cities that are doing quote unquote smart city stuff without the smart city products. I think that's super interesting.
0: Okay. So... What's one controversial opinion that you have that's really strongly held?
1: Um, Well, that technology doesn't solve problems. It can change problems or shrink them or be a tool, but I think people solve problems with technology, not tech itself.
0: Okay. What other areas of tech, I mean, outside of cities um, and smart cities and data, are you interested in or excited about? What would you be doing if you weren't at Stay?
1: I think I'd go back to education. I really loved being able to kind of radicalize and transform what learning is for people. And um, done right, I think that education can be extremely transformative and liberating. So I think I would design a school for people to learn about, oh my gosh, smart cities. No, <laughs> I would I would design a school for people um, that don't want to go to school.
0: What trends do you think will be most impactful for uh, the future of urban living?
1: I think that definitely micro mobility, which is super interesting because we have this um, excitement and rapid rise of ride sharing. So even 10 years ago, I remember it being like this kind of weird thing, like you're going to get into a car with a stranger that's so crazy. So that happened that I think that the adoption of different um, modes of mobility is going to happen a lot faster than we thought. Because that's kind of the essence of urban life. Like you just want to get somewhere and you want to get there as, you know, you want to get there as fast and sometimes as fun as possible, right? And, you know, reforming, overhauling these big subway or underground bus systems, that takes time. So there's going to be a lot of experimentation. And I think we're just starting to see the beginning of the micro mobility. So I think there's going to be a, there's going to be more companies that come to the space and, um, new ways Not just in terms of new vehicles, but new ways the vehicles are going to be used, you know, for businesses perhaps or as incorporated into learning environments. I think the possibilities there haven't been explored
0: yeah I mean this is this is something that I think uh, a lot of cities have challenges with this sort of like last mile problem right mm-hmm. so you can get from you know one part of the city to another part of the city but you still might be a half mile away from your end destination based on public transportation and whatnot that's available I know in San Francisco I moved there right around the same time that uber started up and yeah. getting from one end of the city to the other was always a huge pain especially after Public transportation shut down at night, so there's definitely a huge uh, opportunity there. Still,
1: yeah, and even though there's vendors who are operating at a national or international level for you know for these last mile mobility solutions, they are ultimately hyper local, right? You can the way that they're distributed and regulated, it's around different like hub spots. So I think there's this interesting paradox that's emerging where there are these universal systems. And and solutions, but they also rely very heavily at the, on the neighborhood level and the community level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think about it like bike share doesn't help if there are no bikes available in my mm-hmm. neighborhood. Dockless scooters don't help if, you if, can't find them. if we can't find them. <laughs>
1: or don't know um, where to park them. <laughs> and
0: again, to the earlier point, a lot of times when we think about equitable distribution, those things don't make it into the places where people need the most.
1: hmm it's true.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, so, how will the future be different if Stay becomes ubiquitous?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would never want Stay to be ubiquitous because <laughs> that would just—that's not the point. So, Stay actually stands for symbiotic technology and ecology. So, in a symbiotic ecosystem, there's you know there's mutualisms, there's interdependencies, there's diversity. So, Stay is the right. Let's say it's it's a tool. That any city could use, but not every, we don't, the point is not for everybody to use the same kind of standard. You know, I always say that the highest form of flattery is piracy. (laughs) So it's just, maybe there's not that people are going to pirate our software. Maybe they would. Who knows? But the idea is that there, if there's going to be more types of products or programs like stay. So companies that are interested in um, leveling the playing ground between private vendors and cities. Making data a usable live material that's not just issued, you know, in annual reports, but that you can just easily access. And if you're somebody who's not even, not necessarily devoted to civic technology, you could experiment and dabble with, you know, ingesting a a city API feed and seeing how it could enhance the use of your, you know, grocery delivery app, for example. So I think that once stay becomes more widely adopted, I think the relationship and the attitude will change around data where right now it's kind of this, it's this foreboding task, right? You have to wrangle, like it's always somebody's terrible job to wrangle all these different reports and who's responsible for the uniformity of the data archetypes. And I hope that we are setting the future for a much more fun and free relationship with city data. So it's not um, it's not anxiety producing. It's like possibility producing.
0: Great. Well, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun.
0: And thank you for listening to what's next. We're releasing a new episode every other week. So be sure to subscribe, rate and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King and Laura Flynn with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email at podcast at Until next time.